And we're off. Yes. Shocker to hear you say it that. It is. Gosh, I just look forward to it. Week to week. Every day I don't do it. Steph wants to kill me, but every day I don't do it. It's like I'm missing something. I lost my keys. Not really, but that's the feeling I have. When oh, I that's the feeling. It. Gotcha. Yeah. That took me a second to register. <laughs> Which is the worst feeling as well. It always happens when I'm late. Yeah. You're never late though. We've been late to Bass a few times, <laughs> but I'll blame Gianna. Hey, I was going to say, you can blame Gianna on that one. That's right. We found a nice comfy spot in the narthex. What, uh, what'd you think about the, the Catholic stuff collaboration? I was a big fan of it. I, like I said, I did not think that that would ever actually come to fruition. I was like, I liked it. Yeah, I, I thought it would. There's a lot of voices, four guys in a room trying to all get their two cents in. That's right. But I thought it was, I thought it was fun. It, it definitely was challenging to try to, you know, it, I think I may have said it before. I forget who I said that to. I felt like we were like talk show hosts on the radio when right. it's like the whole, the whole crew trying to fit in. Um, but it was definitely a lot of fun. Is that like what your companion, uh, Lord's Nights is like you somewhat intellectual debate. Well, it depends on who's. Yeah. So there's different, <laughs> the companions, we kind of have a reputation for being kind of intellectuals, but that's not, you know, different guys have different gifts. So some of us have more intellectual gifts. Uh, Father Mike and Father John are both really, really sharp guys. They're really smart. I was like, I was noticing on the podcast when we were sitting in this room, I was the smart one that you were the smart one. Yes. No, I was just thinking Fine. about how, they, they, but they are not disciplined about the way that they, they use theological language, which if they're talking to me is fine, but for the average Catholic out there, I don't even remember examples, but they were using phrases that I just thought, seriously, there's like eight people in the world who understand what you just said. And you just referenced right. average Catholics. Then there's me and I'm along for the ride. You're, in that podcast. you're like, more advanced Catholic than most Catholics. And Father Mike is utterly ridiculous. He is the best. The best part was Father John, before Father Mike got here, just warned us saying, Oh yeah. Hang on for dear life. We never know where this is gonna go. Yeah. So I do want to thank those guys though. They've been they have a hugely popular podcast and um they really promoted us, and that was really nice of those yeah. guys. Even though they They've got an old chip on their shoulder about when they started the podcast, Father John and I were very, very close and Mike and I were too, but not as close. And the big joke over the last decade or 15 years has been Larkin hates the podcast and <laughs> I don't hate the podcast. I just, what I always told those guys is I hung out with them constantly back in those days, at least because we were in seminary and I'd always say, I know everything you guys think about everything. Yep. I, ta- I see you every day for like eight hours a day. I'm not going to listen to you in my car when I'm driving, you know? That's like when sometimes Steph, while we're driving, Steph and I will be driving and she wants to listen or like finish an episode. Yeah. I'm like, there's no way yeah. I have. You're like, I hang with FB all the time. No, I just can't stand hearing my own voice. Me neither. My it's voice is objectively the worst voice though, but. You have a phenomenal voice. Oh, that's all I wanted to So, do. and so people know, I referenced Lord's Night. That is what I call girls club on Saturday evening. You do call but, it girls club. Um, You're still like a high school bully. That's right. I have to, you know, I can't land the theological talk. Like 
verbiage. So I'll just come in and deliver a blow when I can. Yep. So that's our Lord's Day suppers. So we do a lot of charismatic groups do this. We're not really, the companions have some charismatic roots. The Denver guys tend not to be as much that way, except for Father Greg Peterson. But, uh, but anyway, Saturday nights, we have a meal together and we pray evening prayer and night prayer together and we share graces from the week. And uh, that's a normal part of the companions life week by week. Who cooks dinner? How does that work? Sign up for it. Really? um, Yeah. And you're, you're expected to kind of take turns doing it. I would love to do it all the time, but I usually have mass on Saturday nights. And so it's harder for me to do it. There's guys who don't. And like, like father Brady will cook a lot in our household because he doesn't have mass on Saturday oh, nights. Yeah. Um, but when I get the chance, I love to cook. That's your happy spot. I'm trying to ding, 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 ding. I, <laughs> I, yeah. I saw a quote the other day, um, that reminded, made me think of you, okay. um, by Anthony Bourdain. And, uh, wasn't that the guy who like had some show and he died or something? Yeah. He committed suicide. Um, um, rest in peace. Lord have mercy. But it, it had to do with like, your happy place is cooking, mm-hmm. I feel like. And he had a quote that just nailed it on like, it was kind of like, if you want to know a man's soul, if he's cooking for you, I'm going to find it. I'm going to butcher it. But um, if you want to know a man's soul. <laughs> <laughs> home is where the heart is. Uh, what does Wunch cook? Father Jason. Wunch can cook. I, I love, love him. It. He'll listen to this when he's whiffing on one of his eight hour rides. Yep. But he, did you see him? He was at the meeting right after us. I saw his car. Yeah, he I was missed next it. up. He didn't even say oh. hi. But once when he cooks, he'll do like uh, Spanish food, which Spaniards, we love you, but you're not known for your cooking. And there's like a patatas huevas or something. Like there's like this like egg and potato pancake he'll make. And then he'll put out like some like olives. And once I love you, but. There's a reason you weigh like 74 pounds. (laughs) By design. I found the quote. I'm actually excited about this. Anthony Anthony Bourdain said, when someone cooks for you, they are saying something. They are telling you about themselves, where they come from, who they are, what makes them happy. I think that's true for some people. You don't think you? For me, I think it is true. Oh, okay. It made me think of you. I was like that. I am that way, yeah. You have stories that with all your recipes. Cooking's kind of my love language. You know? It is. It it's, is. It's I like, I don't want to buy, I'm not going to buy a gift because I'm terrible at that, but I'll cook you a nice dinner. That's right. And that, that's like my way of telling you that, that I love you. You're in the end crowd. You're in the end crowd. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we just, I missed Father Jason. I did see his car. He parked right next to me and I was like, oh, I wonder where he's at. So that makes sense. But a few shout outs here real quick. Yes. We had a meeting at the AOD. With what's called the PFRC. We like acronyms in the church. That's right. It's a uh, project uh, finance review committee, I think. It was just a big horseshoe of a sea of people. And great people. They're all, they, they're either employees of the archdiocese or people who just volunteer. And they're experts in finance or construction and they review construction projects and they make sure you're not doing something really stupid. So that's, I, that's a good thing. I came out the gates. I tried to land a joke and it just fell flat on its face. (laughs) Yeah. eh, Some people laugh. Some people laugh. I had to like clarify that it was definitely a joke. They asked like, how confident are you guys in your fundraising efforts for this project? I was like, I feel great. First time speaking. And everyone's like, and then I kind of laughed. And then people were like, oh, he's kidding. 
Yeah. I was like, I, I mean, I feel confident, but that was just a joke. I, anyways, uh, but we're sitting there and I'm just trying to make sure that we don't butcher any part of this. And then lovely Paula gave us a shout out out of nowhere. I know that I was very flattered. Same. It got me so off guard though. I was like, at first I was like, Oh no, we're in trouble. And then she was so nice about it. Yeah. That was fantastic. No, she was, it really is amazing. I told the committee this Patrick and I legitimately, it's kind of shocking when you see someone in public and they know about the podcast. And I immediately I think of all the dumb things I say all the time. And I'm like, <laughs> oh man, what did I say? It's so good. And then Brenda and Michelle, um, Brenda Canella. they were, that was just awesome. Um, I don't, I actually don't know Michelle's, I guess, uh, married name, but Baselli, um, she's Baselli. I forget her married name. Yeah. Um, Baselli's are a great family. They are. Um, yeah, they're the best. So, uh, that was awesome. That was great. Now it was definitely caught me off guard, but the support in there was just so cool. Again, we often forget what we, what we talked about. Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, okay. Well, actually, so we came in, we were debating on topics. Elizabeth Shea and Kyle Mason wrote in two phenomenal questions that I definitely at some point want to get to. Um, one, we were asked to kind of re-record our episode. Um, we had, that was back in the days of the audio malfunctions, bou- bouncing back and forth, I believe, uh, from ear to ear in the beginning. But the topic being, can Catholics be wealthy or rich? Um, which I absolutely love that topic. Aerosmith, remember there there was an Aerosmith album called Eat the Rich? No. I think there was. I think that just pops into my head. I honestly That has nothing to do with almost anything. But it just every time I think of Aerosmith, I think of Armageddon when they had mm-hmm. that like one Aerosmith song. Aerosmith, like not a good band, but anyway, that's that's a field from our topic. That well, classic. Um and then Kyle, that was a heavy question. Um what to what to say in the face of death. Yeah. Kyle had a great, by the way, I want to, I want to shout him out. Cause and we'll, I think we'll do his, his question not today, but at some point. Um, but he had a great question. Kyle, uh, is a military vet. So thank you for your service to our country. Uh, and he talked about how he sees a lot of death in his life. He has seen it. And it's kind of asking him, what do I say when you see someone dying? Is there something we can do as Catholics? So we're going to take that topic up, but I think that's probably for next time or yeah. down the road a little bit. It is a, a, when you were reading the question, I was like, man, that is, that is heavy. You know, I struggle with, what do you say in just kind of like sad situations, let alone put yourself in that scenario. Yeah. It's, it's really heavy, you know, especially like for priests, like when you guys go on sick calls and or go do an anointing at the hospital or any of that kind of stuff. Super heavy. Yeah. Like, I don't know if that would not be my gifting. I have such PTSD from hospitals for a number of reasons. Anytime I walk in there, like even the birth of Gianna, I just, I hate hospitals and it just. You get used I, to it as a priest. I lose all words. But I do also want to say just with uh, Elizabeth Shea. <clears throat> She was a part of the crew. We had a gala 
item the other night here, where it's a fulfillment of something. Somebody bought at a gala, and it was just a great crew, great crew of people. The Zellwiggers were here. Uh, there were a whole bunch of just great people. The um, Grinders. Yep. Um, but Losers. Tom and Elizabeth Shea, I've never really spent much time with them before. Just kind of bumping into them at the school and at church and stuff. Uh, but they were super fun to hang out with. It's awesome. They're a great couple. I really and, had a great time with them. And Eric was telling me, so I think they're just a, a crew that gets together once a month or whatever it is. They have, like, they have a Bible study, I think. Yeah. A small group. So awesome. Similar kind of stages of life and all the above. And it's just super powerful yeah. to kind of maintain that. Great crew. And shout out Judy Berry for crushing it. On, yeah, her and Diana. Yeah, and Diana. That's right. Um, Okay, so the topic. The topic. Which Andrea Miller coming in from Texas, but I believe you know her husband, John Miller. John Miller. I know him well. From the seminary? Yeah. So I told Patrick there's a great story about this. So John Miller was um, a seminarian for the diocese of uh, Madison, Wisconsin. A couple years behind me in the seminary, he ended up leaving, obviously, and getting married. He was, but before he got married, actually, I don't know if it was before or after, but he was the director of liturgy for the archdiocese for a number of years. And just a great guy, lots of fun. But we used to have in the seminary, we had the culture wars. <laughs> yeah, okay, go on. And what I mean by this was, I know, seminary's so lame, it's like, in seminary, there's these big deals. I'm like, oh, that just happened. And anywhere else in the world, people are like, really? That's not even a thing. I'm so excited because you didn't elaborate on this. And like right away when I hear that, I think of like, again, I've never really watched the whole like Lord of the Ring house deal. Lord is, of the or is Ring that Harry house. Potter? Oh, Who has oh, the that's houses? Harry, that's Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Um, and I just picture like in some like replication of that in the like so in the seminary everybody thought with the companions but even before the companions was a thing father john nepple and i were very close friends and everybody thought that we were just kind of the cookie cutter suburban white boys and there was a little bit of justification for this we both kind of true yeah uh but we uh we both were like birkenstocks and i don't know whatever but what happened at some point was sem living in the seminary is institutional living. You're living in a building that's a hundred years old and you got little rooms and you're in an institution. And so at one point I, I don't know if it was John or me, but one of us asked one of the priests on the, we lived on the same floor in the main building of the seminary. And we were like, we need like a hangout room for the guys. That's not their bedroom, but can we turn one of the bedrooms into just like a hangout room? Now, the guys now are so spoiled. They have like much, much larger hangout rooms. Kids, you know. <laughs> Kids these days. Kids these days. But anyway, so we, we got permission to turn one of the bedrooms that was empty into a just hangout room for the floor. So we kind of decorated it and we, we had like, we put up images of, of Balthazar and Ratzinger and Aerosmith. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Oh, Not Aerosmith. Shocker. That list of... <laughs> yeah. So he had like some of the Brits in there and novelists, but some of, you know, the great theologians and we had different things in there. 
and the Wisconsin guys. So it was the Colorado guys versus the Wisconsin guys. So uh, Justin Hall was a seminarian. John, there's also a um, John Miller, but there's also Dave Johannes. Mark, Mark Miller was another Miller. But anyways, these guys were like fighting with us. And John Miller actually was a little bit later than this. So these are some of his predecessors in the seminary from Wisconsin. But they were like, they lived on the floor. And they're like, why does Larkin get to have his thing? And Mary Nepple up the ante because she went to like an Etsy type thing. And she made a custom like sign for that room. And we, and she wrote, she called it the Larkin lounge. <laughs> and so we were always talking Where about the Where is that sign? I know, right? I have no idea. But we called it the Larkin lounge. And then the Wisconsin guys got all jealous of it and were like, this is lame. And so they had to try to, they tried to like put in their stuff in there. And Justin Hall, I think it was at one point, got like a neon PBR <laughs> sign that you see at like liquor stores. Yep. In like, the window. <laughs> and we were like, this is so trashy. And so there were always these like fights about, they were like, let's go to Culver's and eat custard and drink PBR. And we're like, let's go do something athletic and go be in the wilderness. You know? Let's have intellectual dialogue while yeah. sipping bourbon. Yeah. Well, anyway, John Miller though, he's a, he's a great guy. He has a beautiful voice. He was a cantor. He can sing really, really well. And uh, has a, he has one of the best laughs of anyone I know. Gosh, now I just need to meet him. He's a great guy, but apparently he's in Texas now. He is. He, and he's working at the archdiocese mm. of... Beaumont? Beaumont? No idea. Beaumont? Beaumont, maybe. It's like French. I don't know. I don't know Texas to save my life. Um, California boy. But, okay, so I actually really appreciate her question. Um, and I think it was kind of the premise, again, of the podcast itself, because I struggle with it. And she was explaining how she was raised Catholic, went to Catholic schools and Catholic high schools, but is now she finds herself the only practicing Catholic of all her school friends. Gosh, isn't that tragic? It's and so it, common. So common. Um, and she said that um, friends and sometimes even under catechized friends or family come to her with questions or bring up difficult subjects, homosexuality, IVF, abortions, and conversations, and she tries her best to answer uh, these questions with truth and love, but they often get very upset, won't listen to her, kind of shoot her down, no matter kind of how logical um, her explanation of the church's teaching, and how to... Um, have how did she word this um how to be a charitable and loving catholic in today's culture and navigating those basically any question she yeah. listed off some very powerful ones especially at some point i would actually love to kind of dive into the ivf scenario right. um again that that's a whole nother bag of worms but from the standpoint of it is pretty common, it's very personal to people and they will fire back. One, they either shut you down and aren't open to listening and or two, accuse you of, you know, relating Catholicism to something 
very extreme. I think she had referenced um, an example of kind of a church perception that is similar to the KKK. And while absurd, right. it happens more often than not. Yeah. So how would you recommend... Navi- I mean, I have an idea of what I would say, but how would you recommend you deal with this? People come meet with you all the time and you can articulate it. But it is different, don't you think? <clears throat> For sure. Because, it, because I'm a priest, people, when they come talk to me about these things, they're, they, they already know what I think. Right. And, and you, do you feel like you also like have the authority behind it? Like a, an elevated authority versus if I try to navigate that conversation. Probably, but I think that's an advantage and a disadvantage. Okay. Because I think people, you're more relatable because you're not a priest. Yes. I mean, you're objectively not more relatable than me. But because you're not, I'm just kidding. <laughs> because. Touche. But because you're not a priest, like, like I think for me, people expect me to have the company line. With all things, I could see that. And also, I think, so anybody who comes and talks to me about things, I would say maybe not 100% of the time, but generally when people come talk to me, they're more open to actual dialogue. Maybe not always, but I, I think there's something to that because they have to make an appointment yep. generally. They've got to okay. come into the office, which isn't how I wish it was. You know. I get it more if I'm in public, you know, we were at uh, Hot Park one night. Oh, okay. Which one are you thinking of? At um, the wedding we both attended and you had spoke mm-hmm. um, during your homily. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you basically, it kind of just felt like you sparked something in a lot of people and therefore they see you at dinner and passing and they want to talk to you about it then and there. Yeah. At the wedding there was a... Uh... There's one guy who had a little too much to drink and he wanted to talk and he just wasn't in a state to really have an actual conversation. And then there was one guy who, you know, you, you know, those people like they don't actually want a conversation. They just want you to know something. That's right. And there was one guy like that and he was, it was a mixed bag because he was very happy with me, but his wife was very unhappy with me. And it, it seemed like his wife kind of sent him over to, make sure that I knew she was unhappy with me. I was like, okay, well, have a nice day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that's yeah. kind of the question, right? Like, I think that's what Andrea is kind of pointing to of like that balance of, are they really sure they've approached you and asked a question, but are they actually willing to engage in dialogue versus kind of just throw in their own opinion? And then anything beyond that is relatively pointless. Yeah. I think there's a lot of different ways this could go because it's an art. And maybe that's a good way totally. to start with is I have gotten this wrong. People never believe me on this, but I, I have gotten this wrong more than like any living human being. And part of it, when I was a Focus missionary, Curtis had a great line, Curtis Martin, the founder of Focus. He would always say, we're so terrified of losing or of failing. Yeah. So we never try. We never try because we're so scared that we don't have a home run. And generally, in, in when people are being contentious, if people are closed off, there is no home run. Yep. Because most people are not thinking, they're feeling. And if they're lost in their feelings on an issue, they're not, they're not in real dialogue. 
And so I think there's helpful things towards it, but we're so scared of failure that we oftentimes don't try. And Curtis used to always just say, he would compare it to, uh, uh, to baseball. And he would say, you know, think of, think of baseball. If you hit the ball one out of three times, you're going to go to the hall of fame. Yep. But we're just so scared as Catholics tend into the dialogue. Now it sounds, uh, I, I'm so bad. Remind me of her name again. Andrea. Andrea. So Andrea, it sounds like you're not. And that's great. Praise God that you're entering into this. But I think a couple of, just maybe a starting point for today's conversation would be, uh, you have to, I think it's, there's a distinction between convincing other people and us being convinced. And the first step is, do you know these things? And yeah. it sounds like Andrea does, right? Is that yep. your impression? Yeah. So I think the first thing is just for us to be confident in who we are. Cause you can't control other people. And very honestly, if you are someone who holds yourself out as a Catholic, you're going to be attacked and just very honestly, you're going to fail. Yeah. And I think it's really important for us. The gospels are filled uh, with teaching on this. Um, Jesus says, you know, a disciple is not above his master. If they have rejected me, they will reject you. That's, and that's our fate. Like if we're, if Jesus was rejected by the world, we might have times of greater success or greater failure, but we should, we should be very joyful. You think of in the, in actually the apostles, the early apostles are brought in and beat before the Sanhedrin. And so that they're testifying to Jesus. They make a testimony and they're literally physically beat and they leave rejoicing. And they rejoice because they're so confident that the real king of the world, the real ruler of the world is Jesus. And they witnessed to him. And so they can leave and they can say the message wasn't accepted, but we got, we got to actually testify to the truth and to the savior of the world. And so I think we have to have a little bit of that in us. We, of course, we don't want to fail. We want to succeed. <clears throat> but, but I think we have to take the pressure off of ourselves a little bit. To have I, the perfect answer. Yeah. I give, yeah. I give my best. I'm going to pat myself on the back here a little bit. I gave my best Easter vigil homily I've ever given. I don't know. I always, when I went to Easter vigil, every year I'm swinging for the fences. Yeah. And sometimes when you swing for the fences, you just whiff. And I feel like I do that every year. I'm like, I need the best homily ever. I need to say this in such a way. There's all these family members of people coming into the church. And I need to have the homily that at the end of the homily, everyone's going to fall on their knees and say, I finally, I've seen the light. Can I be baptized too? And I put so much pressure on myself. I feel like I swing and miss a lot. This year, I felt like I finally really hit it. And part of it was because I took the pressure off myself. So I think that's one step on the way. There's a lot more of it. Two things. Um, as you were saying that Curtis is kind of analogy to baseball. So yeah, you bat 300, you're in the hall of fame to Andrea's question. And kind of what I've, I've felt before is stepping into the batter's box. Either you're so afraid of striking out that you just don't swing. Therefore you strike out kind of what you were saying, but also in those um, discussions, it's almost like you're stepping into the batter's box. Only the pitcher has full intent of hitting you. Yeah. Like you're going to get beamed by the pitch. 
So no matter how well prepared you are, it's useless. Like they're going to hit you square in the back. You're going to get your free base to first base. Yep. But there was no hope of even getting the chance, the at bat for a home run. Exactly. I think this is a major point. It's like Jeff, I don't know what this even means, but Jeff Cavins had always, we went to the Holy Land with him one year. <clears throat> this is when I was a seminarian. And his like one liner, he would just walk up to me randomly. He'd be like, I'm not afraid of you. I'm willing to get in the octagon with you. You want to get in the oh. octagon? I'll get in the octagon with you right now. And I'm like, what the hell is the octagon? <laughs> Do you know now? No. It's MMA. Okay. That's that Conor McGregor stuff. Okay. Well, there you go. The octagon. Yeah. No. It's, it's funny. It's a real life story. So, um, Steph and I, uh, the car we had too small, Gianna's car seat, you know, it's now the progression of at some point I am just avoiding, um, the minivan, the, the minivan. uh, my minivan drivers don't kill me, but I am just trying to wrap my head around it. But to this point, kind of the dynamics between Steph and myself and if, if anyone knows Steph, she's the most joyful, loving, kind person, bubbly personality. Kind of, kind of a loser. Kind of a, a giant loser. Kind of a loser. But she's very firm and confident in her faith. Yeah, she is. And I do think focus equips you with that. Like you are consistently taking reps and kind of what you experienced. Um, yeah, can you take a hit, right? Like I think like with football. If you never, like if you, I remember when I was, I only played my fresh, I didn't even make it through my whole freshman year of football in high school, but I, my, I never played tackle till I was in high school. Yeah. And I remember the first day we had hitting drills. Yeah. And I was terrified. Yep. And of course I lined up with the biggest guy on the team and I was like Jason Wunsch's size at the time. (laughs) (laughs) I was like this tiny guy. And I think there's something like this. If you haven't ever taken a hit for your faith, you're so nervous. Yep. Right. But if you get, if you know, were you that way on the field? For sure. There's the guys that play defense. And then I was for sure an offensive guy. I wanted no part of the contact. Yeah. It, yeah. And so, and I feel like that was like that in football, you get your butterflies and stuff. Yep. And it's almost like you need a couple of hits. That's right. And then you're like, butterflies go away. And you're like, okay, now I'm ready to play. And in football too. It's like when even similar to like car accidents, when you see it coming, it, you tense up and you're like trying to prepare for the hit and it hurts way worse than if you're playing loose and you get hit and you're like, Oh, that wasn't that bad. Um, mm. so I could see that being the same in my own journey. I am still very timid and we were sitting there and, um, the guys were closing out all the 8,000 pages of documents you have to sign. He highlighted it in a way that was where I was going to sign was blue. And then where Steph is, it's pink. And so it made it super easy. And I was like, so grateful. But, um, and I just, I kind of said that I was like, oh, this is the best instead of just two yellow lines. And the whole time you're trying to figure out who signs where. And it got brought up the gender topic. And Steph starts like, I'm like, oh no, she's winding up. Like she, this small little dialogue and I just see where it's going. And as it's starting to play out and she's standing firm in her belief, like, you know, we should have it this way. And it's kind of diving there. I'm like, hey, Steph, uh, where's Gianna's um, pacifier? Like doing anything I can to avoid the conversation going there. And afterwards, I was like, I didn't know if she knew what I was doing. I was like, of course, I don't really need Gianna's past, whatever it was. Um, and she's like, no, I absolutely 
was intentional where I wanted, I wanted to stand firm in that. And I was like, I wanted to stand nowhere near that. Like, and we often find ourselves in that position of like, I don't have that confidence. Hence, again, the point of the podcast being like, I would rather be able to say to somebody, listen to Father Brian explain it versus me. Um, and that's kind of where, like, for me, I put so much pressure on myself to get the answer right. And if I don't feel like I can answer it and hit a home run, I don't want to step in the batter's box. Um, yeah, and there's something... <clears throat> There's something deeply attractive, I think. People who are humble are attractive. And so it's great when there's someone who has, you know, a lot of wisdom and knowledge, but it's also wonderful. I love people who are humble and they say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. And I feel like if you can do that, so I think this is a part of like the, if you're going into a contentious conversation topic with somebody, if you can show a little humility, you know, the person on the other side might be antagonistic and it might not do anything, but I think it's going to go a long way with a lot of people. Being humble. And if, yeah, yeah. and if you can, like, like a trick of the trade, there's a couple of things I really have on my mind I want to offer for this that I think are helpful. But um, how do you be charitable with people? Well, why don't you start off and admit in their side of the argument what's good that's that's so you know that's so i think disarming for people because the normal way that people operate is everyone's out to destroy everybody else yep and i think you know when we have disagreements with people in the culture there's something we have stronger disagreements about and than others but i think in even in the most contentious of all arguments um we can say some, we can name something good and what the other person's saying. Do you, sometimes I feel like I struggle with that because it's not me personally saying it, but when you're on the receiving end of it, sometimes where it's like, okay, great. You're starting out with a concession that leads to, but yeah, like, like you throw that's in why, that. I think it has to be genuine though. Okay. It has to be genuine. And I think that's the distinction uh, I would make. Yep, that's true. Uh, and there, there is a point, you know, and we're going to get to this in a second. Like one of the, one of the key line for today's podcast for me is when, uh, when the question says, how do you be charitable in these arguments? St. Thomas Aquinas and the church would say that, uh, charity is the form of all the virtues. Charity is the form of all the virtues. And I want to, I want to get to that, but I also want to say, uh, to Andrea and to everybody out there who has this question. There is a moment where a conversation ends. And that's actually charitable. But it's, but it's, it, it takes prudence to know when that moment is. I think of, <clears throat> there's a girl, today's like the Holy Land Day. There's a girl in Minnesota who I went to the Holy Land with, who I love very dearly, still do. Haven't talked to her probably in a decade. Uh, her name's Brenna. And Brenna went to the Holy Land with us. And her and I just really connected. We became friends. She was uh, falling into a lot of the cultural critiques of Catholicism where it's anti-gay. It was before the trans thing had really happened. Yeah. 
Um, but the, the, the gay one I think was the big one. And she was just like the Catholic church is dogmatic and hateful. And she was raised Catholic. And for some reason, like, I think we kind of shattered her conceptions. And that's, that's one of the things I want to get to. We've got to get to a place now where we're just locked into the debate and the, the arguments. Cause people, once they get into that place, they don't want to listen. They want to win. Yeah. And you're not going to change anyone's heart that way. But what happened with Brenna was I think we rocked her conception of men who were going to be priests. And I wasn't a priest yet, but I was like super cool and amazing and brilliant. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Larkin's lounge. Larkin, the Larkin lounge. But I remember like her and I, we would, um, she had all these questions about why the church thought the way she did. And her and I, this sounds romantic. It wasn't romantic. But her and I would walk through the streets of like Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or um, <laughs> already we off to a romantic. I know it's, it's, it's not romantic. It wasn't romantic under under the starlight. Under the stars, but but at the end of the day, like we would go for these long walks, and she was like, "I just don't get this," and we would go and walk and talk about it, and um, we've got to break people, and so outside of just I'm in a debate, I want to win the debate. Yep, and. One of the ways that you can help do that with people is if you break yourself outside of that. If you're, and we've all done it, I do, I still do it. You get in a contentious discussion with someone and you just want to win. Yeah. Oh, but anyway, this is what I was getting to. I get, I lose my train of thought. There is a point where you cut off a conversation. And I did that with Brenna. So she had an amazing experience in the Holy Land. She was on the verge of conversion she was engaged to someone who I don't know him personally. I've met him. I, I don't think he had a lot of love for the Catholic church and her friend group back in the twin cities struck me as very anti-Catholic. And I mean, she just told me that. And I just told her, I was like, if you live in that, if that's the, if that's the environment you're living in, you're going to forget all of this in six months or whatever. Yeah, Good luck. And she did. And she, we stayed in touch for a couple of years and she was emailing me about, I think, again, it, was, it had a lot to do with gay marriage. And at some point, she sent, she was, her email started getting nasty. Ooh. And she started accusing me of, you know, being a Nazi and blah, 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 blah. And I don't know if she would use the word Nazi. I hope she didn't. But whatever, whatever she said, it was not, it, it went from, let's talk about this idea and why do we disagree and is there a way to come to an agreement? And it moved to name calling. Hmm. And I told her, I wrote her back and I said, if you want to discuss this, I would love to talk about this with you. If you want to call me names, like this conversation's over. Game over. And that, and I, that really ended our friendship. Yeah. But, but there is, we're not, so Christians, there's a, there's an act of prudence and wisdom, practical wisdom. Prudence is practical wisdom of knowing how long do I bend over backwards, go the extra mile, yep, take the high road, you know? There is a point where you just say, we're going to agree to disagree and um, kind of done. Yeah. And there's, a, there's an appropriate place for that to happen. And there's an appropriate place for Christians to be very strong. There is an appropriate place for Christians to fight very strong. And uh, we have to be willing that, you know, to accept the consequences of that. But we need, we need you know, I heard this in, in political discourse but it's, it's just true of the Christian life. It always has been is 
probably the greatest virtue that's needed for Christians in our time. And you could, I mean, there's tons, so take this with a grain of salt, but we need courage. If you're going to live a, um, a fulfilled life in our time, and if you're going to remain a Christian, you cannot do it without the virtue of courage. And courage means, well, we'll maybe we'll get to this, see where today goes, but courage, St. Thomas Aquinas says that courage is the willingness to suffer for what is good, which comes back to you. Can you take a hit? And cheering about it afterwards. Yeah. And what if, what if you lose the argument? What if it feels like you lost? Okay. Yeah. It's kind of that quote. Um, when, uh, you can lose the battle, but, and still win the war. That love that quote. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, you would <laughs> circling back really quick, disarming, um, yourself as you're kind of going into that. And on that trip underneath your moonlit walks, but having that and breaking down the misconceptions of men entering the priesthood and the priest, you know, priestly life or whatever, the church life, um, something happened as well on the kind of any interaction where people see us together. Um, and I'm not saying it's right, wrong and <laughs> any of the above, but we were riding next to a good buddy of mine in the, in a bus and you and I were just having dialogue hanging out like we normally do but it's often um I am much more less filtered than we are on the podcast um me too just all the above but I remember in our dialogue it was just normal conversation and my buddy at one point had leaned over and was like wait he's seriously a priest like he was so caught off guard in our actual just interaction, all the above. And it really meant a lot to me because that is our friendship. But it also like, it kind of opened him. He, it led to questions like, wait a second. So where's your church again? Like what location? And it's not, um, you know, I haven't seen him at mass, but it, it definitely like, you never know how many, how many times you're going to have to like chip away at the block. But it is little things like that, that no matter how good our argument is for coming to church, it's like all of a sudden he sees you as a real person, as a priest, sees me in that situation. And all of a sudden it's just like, you're not some crazy Catholic with yeah. this worldview. That's just horrific. Yeah. And so this is, so one of the, the, probably the two biggest points I want to get to today is all about this, is that every once in a while this happens, but very rarely. People do not, they're not won over to our arguments by logic. We all pretend that we are, but people are not won over by argumentation unless they're a very mature person. So what most people in our culture, and I, I, I'm very strong on this, we live in an anti-intellectual culture. And so people don't think in our culture. They don't listen to argumentation. They don't think logically about what follows from what. And so you can, if you have the best argument on earth, it does not matter. And what a phrase that's used a lot in Catholic circles about this is you cannot catechize the unevangelized. You cannot catechize the unevangelized. And what we do is we, and this is, so there's a reason why like in RCIA, 
there, a lot of people come to RCIA and what their number one question is, why is the church against gay marriage? Why is the church against transgenderism? Et cetera. Why is the church against contraception? We don't get to that until like March. We start in September and we, you, you don't start a conversation with someone about the faith there. Now I know sometimes you can't help it. And I know this, I don't think we're hitting Andrea's question yet about, but that's going to happen sometimes. How do you stay charitable and like love people in that when that contentious argument does come? And I want to get to that, but you can't catechize the unevangelized. And so, so what I mean by that, think of this image. If you think of clay, um, if someone, if you're debating with someone about a moral issue or a church teaching, you've got to ask yourself, is this soft clay or is this clay that's been put in the kiln and it's been hardened and its form is set? And I think with most of these arguments, there's, there is still a way to be charitable with those people and to be strong. And that we're going to talk about that. You should be strong and you should not be a doormat. But if they're, if clay is hardened, you can break a pot, but you can't mold it. And what we want to do as Catholics is we want to mold people. But the, the, one of the great lies of the modern world is that, to, is that to find truth, you don't, all you need to do is be smart. This is one of the great lies of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment taught that truth is just about being smart. That is so wrong. It's just unbelievably wrong. And I, I think today we're seeing this in our, um, from whatever side of the political aisle you rest on, what all of us do is we have preconceived notions of what the truth is. And then we will use every ounce of our power to bend reality to fit that. And it's not just like this guy is smarter than this guy. That's not human beings are much more complex than that. It's a lie of the enlightenment that just pure logic could win. You're not a robot. The great, gosh, I can, I'm getting, I'm revved up today. I love it. The, the great, kind of different cultures have different heroes that kind of embody like what a human being should look like. And the great figure of the enlightenment that arose uh, as kind of the emblem of the enlightenment is Sherlock Holmes. And so if you think of Sherlock Holmes, the, the key to any mystery and anything that looks like it doesn't make sense is just being really, really smart. Okay. Yep. And if you're really, really smart, there's an answer to everything. And so, so one of the things we got to realize that people is that people are not robots and they're not Sherlock Holmes. They don't work that way. People have hearts and they have desires and they have a way they want to see things work. And so what we've got to do is we've got to recognize that. And so they're, they're not neutral observers. None of us are, neither am I. None of us are neutral. We come in and we want the argument to go a certain way. It takes an extraordinarily mature person including Christians. A lot of us Christians need to work on this a lot. It takes a very mature person who loves the truth in such a way that they will follow it wherever it leads. That's deep. It, when you say that the not robot piece too, it um, reminds me of, well, <laughs> classic church talk versus, <laughs> versus kind of what I always struggle with, but you cannot catechize until you evangelize, yep. which I like the rhyme, blah, blah, blah. But it reminded <laughs> me of 
the synod on synodality scenario of like, what does that even mean? Yeah. But in the layman terms is what I had always heard is people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. That's another great way to say it. And, um, it is often a battle. And when you say like the not robot piece is I often feel like when they, when someone comes in overly aggressive or hardened clay is trying to also remind yourself that, to have compassion of like, I don't know. I don't, there's no way I know the backstory and if how they were burnt, what happened in their past that led to this kind of, um, misconception or understanding or even the church's teaching understood it at one point and later on didn't what interaction happened and coming from that kind of place enables you to kind of like it's not about the win it's trying to just kind of walk with them in that perspective because it's not a direct attack it's like what happened so people you're you're hitting it exactly right we don't win people over to our perspective or to Jesus more importantly by convincing them the church is right. Um, a lot of enlightenment thinkers, again, people like a lot of the founding fathers of our country, like Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin, <clears throat> they believed the Christian moral teaching was totally right, but they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in God. And all the good moral teaching on earth isn't going to do you much good if you don't have Christ. Gosh, even, I mean, if you think of, um, in scripture, the woman at the well, uh-huh. like Jesus could have gone to her and said, boom, like, yep. here's the facts. And instead he loved her. She started to realize that and then was able to say, don't do it again. Yeah, that's it. John chapter four, the woman at the well is a wonderful example of that. And so N.T. Wright, again, I credit him with this, is worldviews are like glasses. And so what happens is if, if Patrick has pink colored glasses on and I've got blue and we're looking out and we look out the window and we look at a tree in the front yard, we're both looking at the tree. And so we both think we're just seeing reality as it is. But the truth is, is that we have different colored lenses in our glasses and everyone has glasses when it comes to what they think about what life is about. And the real question with most of these, most of these debates we get in with people who have a different worldview from us, they're not Christians is the question. There's really the question behind the question. Yeah. And so it has to happen, right? So I want to get to how do you, within that conversation, you're not going to change the person. How do you be charitable? when they're attacking you, I'd love to get to that. But I just think the way we usually win people to Christianity is not because we, we got to get them to take their glasses off. And you know how you get them to take their glasses off is you show them the beauty that they are actually loved. When that happens, it changes everything. Absolutely everything. And there's other ways too, you know, with Brenna, when she was on the path towards the church, I think, and uh, there was something that made her rethink her categories when we were in Israel. And what was more important than me having the right arguments that mattered, she needed to have an answer to some of her questions. But if I had all the right answers and I was weird and rigid and uptight, 
then she would have just tried to destroy me. Yeah. And it, in her mind could potentially just validate. Doesn't matter what you said. You just automatically validate all of her misconceptions. Yeah. And so we've, and you said it, we got to walk with people and Brenna, like she wasn't going to listen to me. She wouldn't even ask me those questions actually. If she didn't like, if we weren't at the, on the pilgrimage and like, I don't know how we first connected, but whatever it was, if you shatter a person's conceptions about you, you're like, Oh wow. He was actually like, not a DIC. You know what? Um, I don't know why I just did that, but, but he wasn't, you know, and he didn't, he wasn't just like kind of humanly strange. He was like, he could talk to me about normal things about music that he likes and you know, whatever else. And from that, people have to get to a place where they can let some of their walls down. Yeah. If they're, if they're in their trenches and their walls are up, doesn't matter how good your argument is. It can be airtight. Made me think of um, Chris Hitchens, I think it was, gave a debate with Dinesh D'Souza at CU one year that I went to. And uh, in terms of logic, Dinesh D'Souza totally won the argument. But I, 100% of the students who walked out of this auditorium felt like Chris Hitchens won. And the reason was because Dinesh D'Souza used much better logic and he was much more intelligent about what he was saying. Chris Hitchens won though, because he just appealed to people's humanity. Yep. And he did some things that were really cheap shots, but that's another story. So do you ever feel like, and then I, I want to get to the, for the sake of time, the charity piece. Yeah. But leading to that is like Steph also has an art sometimes where she'll trick me and in conversation, I'm like, Oh no, like somebody just said something and I'm like waiting for her. I'm like, Oh, here we go. And then she won't. And she finds kind of an art of like, it didn't, it's not the right time. And I don't view it as like, it was a cowardly uh, approach of not addressing something that was brought up that, clearly she doesn't believe in, but she has this way of kind of like feeling out the situation and being like, they weren't going to listen. So it's not like every conversation she goes into is about trying to prove a point and standing super firm in her faith. It's like, okay, again, I'll lose this battle to win the war and we'll have this conversation again. But right now at this lunch with people around their guards are up you address something and they're all of a sudden going to put up this huge wall or get aggressive because they don't want to lose. Yeah. Um, but in the instance of charity, charity and standing firm in your belief, how do you navigate that? Yeah. So, so, so there's this language from, from St. Thomas Aquinas where he says, so charity is the form of the virtues. So this is going to be an oversimplification. And if Dr. Susan Sellner Wright listens to this, she'll be like a little piece of her heart will die because I should do better than this. But in, in metaphysics, which starts with Aristotle, there's a, at least, yeah, that discipline. So metaphysics, it's not the modern, sometimes that word is used for like modern kind of occult type stuff. That's not what we're talking about. Metaphysics is a book 
that Aristotle wrote. And just and in Greek, it just meta means can mean after. It literally means after the physics in Aristotle's corpus of works. What metaphysics is, is the study of being. Okay. Of all things that exist, it's one of the hardest disciplines of the mind because it's so broad and basic. So this, for a lot of you, this, this might be hard to wrap your minds around and it's okay if it is. It, I've been studying metaphysics, not directly, but indirectly for 20 years, not, maybe not 20, but close to 20 years. And it's, I understand it much better, but it's taken a long time. Okay. So, but metaphysics has a lot to it, but one of the things of, of all the things that exist, um, there is form and matter. Those are two aspects of everything that exists. Um, so in physical things, part of form, not all of it, but part of form is oftentimes the shape. But a form tells you what a thing is. So for instance, you could have a dog and a cat that roughly have the same shape, but a dog is not a cat. And so what a thing is, is its form. And the matter is the actual material that goes in to make it up. But you could also have another example. Of this would be, you could think of form and matter as um, in music. And so for instance, if you took a piano and you just took every note that's on a piano, that could be the matter. Okay. So, every, But the notes themselves, not just the piano, but the notes. And that's not a physical thing, right? I mean, there's physical vibrations in the air or whatever. I don't know much about how sound works. But the form, but then if you take a symphony, or not a symphony, but a piano piece, if you take one of Chopin's compositions or Beethoven, the way all those, the matter of the notes is arranged and how they interact with each other is the form. And so the difference between, for Elise, right? You know that one? No. You're talking about Chopin the vodka? Very funny. I have never, every time I walk in your office, no, I've never once turned on. That's Beethoven. Chopin or Beethoven. But, um, but you could think of like um, any other form of music. If you had, if you had a Coldplay song where the piano is playing, yeah, okay, they might be using some a lot of the same notes as like a Billy Joel song, but the way they're arranged and played is different. Yep, that's okay. the form. Okay, got it. All right, so here's a, so Saint Thomas says using that sort of language, he says charity is the form of all the virtues. So think of it this way. Imagine if we have hot wax uh, and we squirt out little bits of hot wax on a desk and you have different things that you're going to push into the wax. Yep. The matter for all those is the same, right? But you have different stamps for different wax. Yep. Right. Now we've, so that would mean it would have the same matter in each one, but it would have a different form. Okay. Right. Or imagine maybe an easier way to think of it would be if you have, um, you have a hundred slabs of granite that are identical basically. Yep. But you have a hundred sculptors and each of them is going to carve a different statue. Okay. 
So you have the same matter there, but you have different form. Yep. Okay. So what Thomas is saying though is the opposite. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, so in every virtue, so different virtues, which are habits, virtues are good habits. And uh, Andrea, this is for you. Like charity is the form of all the virtues. So how do we remain charitable when someone's attacking us? So imagine if you have 18 different types of stone, but you have one sculptor and he's going to carve the same, same statue out of the different, the 18 different types of stone. This is what St. Thomas is saying is that so love charity, charity is not just human love, it's divine love. What's happening is in every concrete circumstance you can think of, what a virtue is, is divine love in that situation. Oh, that's powerful. Okay. Isn't that beautiful? So if I can stamp divine love into granite and then into clay, right? And so in some situations, and so this, this is the hard, this is why your question is impossible. It's been a long podcast to get to telling you your question is impossible to answer. But what happens is, so if someone's attacking you and they're going after you, prudence is, is something that interacts with all the human virtues, which is practical wisdom. But in some, if someone's attacking you, you know, they're coming after you and they're saying, you Catholics, you're just like the KKK because you don't believe in transgenderism. Well, prudence has to be a part of this, but with one person, divine love in that scenario might say, I'm just going to take the hit and I'm going to love them and say, you know, I really, I really believe I love that person. I can't tell a lie. So I'm not going to tell you that it's okay for them to do whatever they want to do, but today I'm not going to try and win the argument. That could be a way of loving that person in that scenario. Guess what else could be is courage. Courage is a virtue and uh, charity is the form of all the virtues. So what does charity mean? St. Thomas says charity is to will, which means to choose. Doesn't mean just to hope for. doesn't mean just to intend. Charity means to choose what is good for the other. And that's why this is such an art. So this morning, one of our students will remain nameless. Uh, he's in high school right now and he was at mass with me this morning and he was flirting with two girls during mass. Ooh. And I've seen him do it before. And I gave him a little check about three weeks ago. And he, he sits in a place in the church where his teachers can't see him. And I gave him a little check, you know, a couple weeks ago and he did it again today. And I was asking myself, what is charity in this situation after mass? And I was like, do I just let it go? Cause I don't want him to think priests are just hard asses and Christianity is just rigid moralism. And, and, and here's where I just bring all this together is I have a relationship with him. Okay. I've known him since he was a little kid and the two girls he was kind of being flirtatious with and they're talking all through mass and they're hiding in the church in a place their teachers can't see. And he's, a, I think, a sophomore in high school. So what I decided after mass is I'm going to give him a bit of a butt chewing, you know? That sounds yeah. so weird. Can I say ass chewing? I'm just going to say that. And so I did. And for me, that's very gentle because that's just the way I'm 
predisposed, but I didn't do it with the two girls. Hmm. And the reason is because I have a relationship with him. Okay. And I know, and I have a history with him. And so I know that he respects me and he, I think he knows that I love him. And so I took him outside and I said, never again during mass. And I told him, I said, I don't, I don't want to be a hard ass. I don't want to be rigid. I don't want to be hard on you, but not during mass. You will not do this. And I told him, I said, I expect more from you. Mm. And, but I didn't do it to the two girls because for me, my kind of prudence in the scenario was even though what the girls did was wrong, virtue means love in the right way, in the right manner, at the right time, that kind of thing. And so I could have told these girls what you're doing is inappropriate because it was. But to love them, I want to win the war and not the battle. And I, because I don't have a relationship with them, this, the, the boy, we have a long-standing relationship and I think he knows that I'm not that guy. Right. I'm not harsh. I'm not mean. And so I have the, I have the authority to tell him that because he knows who I am and we have a relationship. Now these girls, I don't have a relationship with them. So I, so, so I don't think it would have been loving. I think, I think the loving thing for me with them in that moment was I'm just not going to say anything and I'm going to put it on this boy to kind of take the, the higher road. Yeah. And it allows Ultimately, he knows he's wrong. He messed up. Yep, and he apologized. It allows, like, understanding where you're coming from and you, you have that relationship, the truth will settle in versus yep. all of a sudden it's like, I don't know you. It's their fault. It's all the above. It reminds me, my, right as you were saying this, it gave me chills too, of my senior year um, playing football, doing all this kind of stuff, finally being a senior. I had committed to Colorado before the season. Um, I had a very, my favorite professor was, um, my English professor, honors English, blah, blah, blah. But I had an immense amount of respect for him to the point where I had, I definitely should not have been in honors English, but he took me under his wing. I had to show up early. I never wanted to let him down was kind of where the relationship was coming from. And my senior year, I started to get extremely cocky. Yep. And one day, I'll never forget it. I mean, it changed my life was he came to me and chewed me out and hip checked me very similar to what you did and was like, you are becoming somebody you're not. You're becoming cocky, arrogant. You are better than this. And I ultimately ended up kind of separating from some of my friends in that situation, Mm. all the above that it very easily could have escalated well beyond that. But then I became aware of it. And it totally changed me. But if that would have been any other teacher in the school, yep. they're dead to me. And it is kind of that you also the art of like, we always call it in football, knowing KYP, know your personnel, like what will speak to them, like what you did, it, yeah. it won't land for the females in that situation, but also what is the right approach um, to have it be something that will connect with them? Yeah. And so, so Andrew, what I would say to you is, there's no, people always want formulas. This is part of my critique yeah. of traditionalism right now, right? Is like people want formulas and they want everything to be clear. There are, there are lines in Christianity and there are boundaries for sure. There's other areas where Aristotle says only the virtuous person knows what is virtuous. 
And so people always, we always think we know best, but what I think, I think the, so baseline answer for you today, for me at least is the only way you can be charitable in these ways, in these conversations is for you to constantly be growing in virtue. And so to know what the virtues are, right? The cardinal virtues, the human ones, right? Are uh, prudence, which is the hardest, temperance, justice, and courage. And then faith, hope, and love. And, and if you think of it this way, the best arguments on earth aren't because it was a good argument. It's because of a person. Yep. Right? And so uh, I think of like... um. Archbishop Shapu for me is one of my great heroes. Um, and you know, I respect all the office of all bishops. Um, and just like priests or married couples or single people, bishops are human beings. I think one Archbishop Shapu is worth a hundred other bishops. And the reason I think that is because of who he is. Yep. A lot of bishops could give the same arguments he gives. But because Shapu is such a virtuous man and cause he, you would watch him. And when I was a seminarian in Denver, you would watch him with unbelievable courage, stand up for the truth. And there were other bishops who did the same thing, but none of them did it with love and balance and wisdom the way Shapu did. And so in those arguments, like, like I, Father John and I debate about this sometimes you would watch Archbishop Shapu preaching and um, John would say Shapu wasn't the greatest homilist ever, which is probably true. I probably would agree with that. But when he spoke, you could hear a pin drop. You listened. Yeah. And it wasn't because he was like, oh, I've got the best rhetor- rhetorical style. It's because of who he was. Everyone respected him. He loved God so obviously he was such a man of integrity, you know, and he was so courageous that like when he spoke at the cathedral, he could give longer homilies than me. No one cared. Yep. So. Oh, that's deep stuff. It is deep stuff. It's a great question today. It is. And it it is one of those things where it's like you initially, when I read it, it's like, I want to give the, here's your three-step formula to winning over the unwinnable, all that kind of stuff. But it is just coming from that place and, and developing the relationship to where you can say the truth and not just punching back yep. um, to where they will receive it. And one, one more thing I would say, I don't even know what Patrick always hides the time for me these days. I don't know how much time we got. We're, we're a little bit over. Okay. Last thing I'll say prudence. A lot of people think prudence. I, I'm a big believer in meet people where they're at and walk with them. Big believer in that. But also there are times when someone needs to be put in their place. Yeah. And prudence is saying, so Joseph Pieper, I almost said St. Joseph Pieper. He kind of is a saint for me, but I don't have the authority of the church. Joseph Pieper talks about how in the modern world, prudence is oftentimes used as a synonym for cowardice. And he's like, that is not what prudence is. Prudence demands courage. And so sometimes, you know, and again, this is why it's, there's no easy answer depends on the situation and the person and all these other factors. But sometimes the prudent person is the one who says, I've had enough of your anti-Christian hatred and your unwillingness to have an actual argument. You're going to shut your mouth. Yeah. Or I'm calling Patrick. 
<laughs> and you're going to step into the octagon. You're getting in the octagon with Jeff Cavins. Yeah. Yeah. But even in that situation, don't you think it's like you finally reached that breaking point? Like it, it's not just a. Yeah. For the person's good. Yeah. And then they grade the key. Right. And it's none of us does it perfectly. And ask yourself, great question to ask yourself is, do I want what's best for this person? And sometimes you can be really angry and want what's best for that person all at once. Yep. Because they're being outrageous. But sometimes we need to check ourselves. Sometimes we just want to win. And if you, if you just want to win and you don't really want what's best for their person, step outside and take a deep breath and talk to them another time. Yep. Oh, Andrea, great question. Um, I hope to be able to get to the other questions as well, Elizabeth and Kyle. And again, anybody... We love it. It helps guide our <laughs> narrative. I'm not kidding. And I always try to tell people that when they do say they listen, that we generally do come in here and I, we, it's 100% unscripted, um, but really trying to address the questions that are actually coming to mind for people. Yeah. So rant yep. at lordsdenver.org. All right, everybody. Happy Easter. Gosh, that was a great. I'm, I'm actually really excited about that topic, the one we just had. Okay. You hit the pause button or? I am. I am. I'm. Yep. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>